Hello everyone, um, I'm Narinda um, and welcome to the BAFTA Cymru Awards Sessions, Making a Documentary. Forgive me, I've got a terrible sore throat, which I've been trying to tackle with loads of LEMSIP and, um, and whatever. But anyway, um, bear with me. Um, this virtual series celebrates the nominees from this year's BAFTA Cymru Awards. Um, uh, some housekeeping before we start, guys. Um, join the conversation on social using hashtag Cymru Awards. Um, if you've got a question, please use the Q&A function, which will be open throughout the session, and we'll be answering these later. Um, closed captioning is available now, which you can turn on at the bottom of your screen via the CC button, apparently. Um, so joining me, uh, we have uh, Gwen Hughes, Laura Martin-Robinson, Liana Stewart and Luke Pavey. Um, first of all, well done, guys. I mean, they're great, great films. Um, I watched all of them in one, one sitting um, and was totally mesmerised and brilliant, brilliant work. Um, I, I just wanted to start actually with, with each of you, just because we've got a range of people potentially listening to this who are sometimes trying to get into documentary making, others might be quite experienced, um, others may be actually uh, trying to get from being an AP to, to director. Um, I'd love to hear actually one by one from you, how you actually got into documentary making and what, what's been the route and maybe what kind of advice you might offer people who are here listening. Um, so Gwen, how, how, did, how did you get in? It's a good question. <laughs> I started um, at the BBC uh, years and years and years ago as a PA, as a PA to one of the heads of departments there and um, didn't really, hadn't, you know, my background wasn't in television or anything like that. So I didn't really know what to expect other than I knew the BBC and knew its reputation. So I, um, I was there for a while and I, and I quickly sort of got to realize what it was all about and sort of fell in love with it really. And so after that was just a sort of temporary role covering somebody's long service leave. And, but after that, I just didn't want to leave. I just loved it. So I got a job in the factual, in the arts department, which is a factual department. Um, and then started off as a researcher um, and left, worked for an independent, sort of worked my way up like over the years, really. Um, and yeah, so I, I, was, I was lucky. You know, a lot of it was luck, you know, being in the right place at the right time. I also think like a lot of it came from just giving it your all. I absolutely loved it then and I absolutely love it now. Like I'm always like, you know, I have the same excitement about projects now that I did then. And I think that, you know, would be my, you know, for the people listening that are trying to break into it is just have that enthusiasm that you have always and just, you know, always do your very best and then hopefully things will, will get there. How about you, Laura? How did you break in? Um, I did an internship in uh, London at the BBC, um, I mean like it was about 17 years ago and it was really kind of before they knew what they were doing with internships so I ended up like stacking shelves in the arena library for a long time right. and it was great because I got to know all of the films that arena made and watched them all and um, got really good at the alphabet um, and then and then I I basically um, 
I sort of figured out, you know, that if I was in the BBC, that was my opportunity to kind of get the next step. So I sort of researched like all of the um, films that were being made but, and wrote to all the execs and said that, you know, I'd really love to meet them for a coffee. And, and they were all very nice and generous with their time. And, and I got a job as a, a runner on, a, on an arts programme after that and then moved over to Docs a little while later. But yeah, I think, you know, in addition to what Gwen was saying about giving it your all, you also have to just be quite fearless and determined and, you know, don't be shy about asking people for advice because um, most people are really, really generous and happy to give it. Sorry. He's off. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Uh, the Amazon person always arrives at the wrong moment. Um, um, Liana, yeah, go on. How, how did you break in? Um, I probably crawled in. There's no breaking for me. Um, no, I went to, I studied documentary film and TV in, in Newport um, University in Wales. And I was probably one of the worst students. And I'm, I'm, I mean that I wasn't one of you know the top graded people. I wasn't the most popular person. Um, but in the final year, I plucked up the courage to ask the best editor and the best um, camera operator to work with me on my two films. Um, and they were pretty good, apparently. And, and that really gave me a lot of confidence because I wasn't very confident at all. Uh, and I, I, I started... Um, I started uni when, when I was like 22, graduated when I was 25. One of my films ended up on CBBC, which was amazing. And, and then I moved to London as a runner because that's pretty much the reality of telly, you know? Um, you can have one massive high and then a little bit of a low. But what I learned from doing that was it was great and creative to make this student film on my terms or how I felt it was on my terms. And then and then coming to London and, and seeing the reality of this massive beast of an industry. And it's really daunting when you're coming from a smaller place. It's really expensive. People can be really mean here, especially when you're coming from Wales where people are generally really nice. Um, and then, and then I, I work my way up from there. But what advice I'd give just to, I'd really echo what, what the ladies have said, but also, perseverance is key because I wasn't one of the best at uni. There were people much better than me, but I don't know if they, if they, you know, really could go the extra mile, which was occasionally taking jobs which were really long hours for really low money. But I knew where I wanted to go. So it's really good to have a focus. You know, it's, it's great to say you want to be in TV, but what do you want to do in TV? Is it entertainment? Is it documentary? You know, is it art? And, and then it'll, it'll really help you with your path to, to getting to that role that you, you want to do. So yeah, perseverance for me is, is a, a big one. And also just doing things a little bit differently. You know, I was probably one of the few runners who had a business card and a showreel when I got to London. People laughed in my face, but they also thought it was, it was brilliant and, and, and different. And, and that got me job opportunities because I was a bit different to everyone else. So I just say, don't be afraid of standing out from the crowd as well and um, enjoy what you're doing. That's if you can enjoy what you're doing in the beginnings of your career, because um, it, it is a struggle, but it's also an amazing industry um, because you, it's a real privilege to work in this industry. You get to meet lots of different people, 
visit lots of places which you never imagine you can go to. Um, but also, I think you just need to have this end goal and then and then really just go for it. Yeah. And you don't have to go to London, by the way. Um, some of us just did. <laughs> um, Luke, how about you? Um, yeah, so I, I did journalism in University at Cardiff and then um, went straight to the BBC, BBC Wales on work experience for four weeks and I left four years later. So um, I started off working as a, uh, my sort of main, my first sort of proper job in BBC Wales was as a researcher on coast. Um, and then I got given a few breaks. I was sort of encouraged to pick up a camera and start shooting. Uh, there's a very good um, uh, shooting PD at BBC Wales, uh, Sam Rosie who sort of really encouraged me and sort of pushed me to, to start shooting and re-nurtured that element of my, you know, my skill set. Um, and then I left BBC Wales and Gwen gave me a job uh, working for Indus Films. Um, and again, you know, in terms of like what, you know, what to sort of advise people, you learn from those around you, you know, it might, even if it's like carrying the tripod or, you know, you know, taking down notes on location or whatever it is, just you know, be a sponge for those around you and really listen. And I think a um, big bit of advice as well is sort of take your time. You like you don't have to sort of go into television, and you shouldn't. You know, if you're not a director within within a year, you know, don't don't stress about it. You know, I think actually the best the best directors I know were the best APs and researchers. And I think the skills that you learn as a as a researcher in terms of dealing with people and talking to people and listening. Uh, attention to detail, all of those things you learn right from the beginning. And if you can carry that through to you, it, or like in terms, if you want to be a if you want to be a documentary filmmaker, documentary director, then you're still I still you know call on all those skills I I learned on coast many years ago now. <laughs> and in terms of like um, inspirational films, really in, inspirational documentaries that that you've seen that you still remember, um, what would those be actually? What, what, what are the sort of films that have inspired you? Um, there, was a, there was a series, it's, it goes back a while, it's called The Tower on BBC and it followed a tower block in London. And remember, it was being, yeah. remember, yeah, it was being turned into a high rise, it's being turned into sort of luxury flats. Um, and I watched that series and was just sort of blown away by it, by just the, the access and the characters that they had it was one of, it was one of those series that was just sort of pretty perfect like the voiceover was brilliant you might not get away with it now it's quite sort of theatrical voiceover um the music was spot on but the warmth and the sort of the characters that drove it was were brilliant and that was one that's one of those series that sort of really stuck with me um i watched it quite early on in, in my sort of career and it's been one of those ones that you sort of if you think if I could if I could make that then I'm doing all right <laughs> yeah. um how about you Gwen what inspirational films you know from whatever period really that that, that really sort of grabbed your attention um I loved all that Michael Palin the travelogue stuff like years ago you know when he first started traveling around the place because I don't think like I, I don't remember people doing that before him really like I'm, I'm that young <laughs> <laughs> but um so he was I, I, I absolutely loved it and it showed me like parts of the world I had never seen so I loved all that sort of stuff um and that kind of carried on a bit because we were at Indus with Luke like we did all that stuff with Bruce Parry you know he did journeys to the Arctic and at the Amazon and we did sort of advent, lots of adventure and travel stuff so 
I was really lucky in that in that regard. But um, but more recently, I'm really into sort of um, feature docs. You know, like I loved like things like Man on Wire, um, Searching for Sugarman, uh, The Imposter, all that kind of stuff is like that, that's the stuff I absolutely love now, like still and can watch like over and over. And um, yeah, and I think that that, that all that the sort of feature those kind of feature doc things all all stay with me you know and I try and kind of really it's hard to watch things as a viewer I don't know if you all feel the same but I'm always like analyzing or you know watching how things are being done rather than actually viewing I don't know if that's the same for everyone else I'm sure it is but television isn't really a, a relaxing activity for me I just I sort of can't switch off but, but I love that as well. How about you Laura? Um, so I think like the first um when I was doing the arena library, there was this one film called Searching for the Wrong Eyed Jesus. And it was just this like unbelievably crazy um, documentary about music in the South of America. And, um, and it was just really, really creative and it just kind of blew my mind. Um, and then, and I guess after that, then when I sort of, so that was the kind of arts period, I suppose. And then when I moved more into docs, um, I, I kind of fell in love with Kim Longinotto, like all of her films, I just think are totally incredible. And, um, you know, she just makes her films with such compassion and um, warmth mm. and, um, you know, really, really interesting subjects that I'm sure would mainly be considered niche um, by most commissioners, but, you know, really important films. So, yeah, so those those are the two kind of well all of her films I thought were brilliant but um yeah her she, films she did um Divorce Sharia Style is that is that right which was a, yeah. which is an amazing film actually yeah. Yeah. yeah she makes you know like that one you know it was all about like divorce in Iran wasn't it and then she made one called Sisters-in-Law about this sort of little um group of um female Af this kind of female African law firm that was like standing up for you know the most horrific crimes mainly against women but you know she just does a lot a lot of female focus films um but um yeah very does it with a lot of integrity what about you Liana um Paris is Burning is is my favorite documentary I absolutely love it um, there's just something really pure about um, film in this subculture in New York in the 80s and it's it's a film I still I watch every year and I, I watch it because I love I love the way it was shot and how intimate it feels but I, I it just reminds me how how lucky I am as, as a human being when I watch that film so yeah that's that's a massive inspiration for me and it was a, a female director which I didn't really know they existed to be honest I thought it was just kind of men but it's great they do exist and we're here uh, I'm afraid judging by the recent survey it looks like it, it's still men actually which is terrible but um, um just just drilling down into your film you know which is you know an excellent piece of work um black and Welsh tell, tell me because sometimes people are sort of um, not sure how ideas come about actually. So how did the idea for that film come about? What, what was the inspiration for that? I'd say the, the inspiration was actually Black and Scottish, which was a film um, made by Stuart Kayashmir. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's probably gonna kill me. 
but I have to pay homage to that because it was fantastic documentary highlighting black people in Scotland. And then, um, and then I had a call from the producer Katrin Ramasut in, in Cardiff from Yaya Productions. And, and she was like, we need to make a Welsh version. Why haven't we had one already? It should have been done years ago. What's going on? And that, yeah. and I was like, who is this woman? I love what she's here for. And, and so we went from there and what, I didn't want to do from the start was have a bunch of famous black people from Wales. I just didn't want that at all um, because actually what tends to happen is BBC Wales, no offense to them, but they just recycle the same people all the time. So I wanted different voices from different places around Wales. And what was great was that Catherine's a, a Welsh speaker. She lives in Wales. I live in London now. And she was just able to really guide me and say, well, let's get someone from North Wales. Let's make sure we get someone from here. Let's, you know, so it was, it was really nice. And I really enjoyed the casting, which is a really important part of it. So I, I'd say pretty much it was from being, you know, screamed at by a really passionate producer in Wales. <laughs> right. And then recognizing, yes, this should be here. So it was, it was an amazing opportunity for me. I'm, I'm so grateful that I, I took that call. And I remember taking it on the train and I could barely hear her, but it was, yeah. It was did, you, did you have a clear sense of how you were going to make it or how, you, how it was going to be structured before the casting or did the casting come first and then you worked out actually how the, what shape the film would take? Uh, my first thought was I just wanted something green in the background. I have no idea why I wanted that. I just wanted, I wanted a, a really open space which was bright and light and I wanted green somewhere. It's not even my favorite color. It just reminds me of Wales. And, and so the, I, the visual idea came before the casting, I'd say. And then, and then because it was quite tricky with casting because I'm black and from Wales, specifically from Cardiff, I know a lot of black people there. So it could have easily been cast within 10 minutes of where I grew up. But uh, the challenge was casting outside and I'm, I'm really grateful that we spoke to around 80 people, you know, it was, it was fantastic. So, so yeah, the, I wanted it to be funny as well, because I think Welsh people just are not afraid to, you know, take the mickey out of themselves. And we're, I, I believe we're pretty happy laid back people. And I just wanted to represent that in a film. I think when you talk about race, immediately people think trauma and sad, oh my God, woe is this person when actually, I wanted to celebrate being black and Welsh and, and I, I hope that's what I achieved with it because I, I'm really proud to be both of those things. Um, so yeah, so I, I really wanted it to be celebratory from the get go and I'm really lucky to have the support to, to make it that way actually. And how, and how difficult was it to cast um, black people from North Wales? Because um, obviously, you know, the, the, the population's concentrated mainly in the South, you know, Newport and um, Cardiff. And a bit in Swansea, but did you make a conscious, deliberate effort to make sure that the rest of Wales was represented? Yeah, absolutely. And even if I didn't, the, the producer would not have let me let that happen. And I'm really grateful for that, actually, because I had no idea what it was like to be black in West Wales. I was from a bubble, you know, I didn't know I was like a minority until I got to high school. So I was really, really lucky. And most of the people in the programme did not have that experience. So, yeah, it was difficult to, to cast, in particular in North Wales, 
Um, but I'm really lucky because people there, you know, the various small organizations were so supportive. Um, so we did actually end up casting two people from North Wales. Um, so I was really, really happy with that. I, it was it, it was a different voice that we we really needed in the documentary, I thought. So from those 80 or so people that you got, how did you then work out who was the strongest or what, what, what were the sort of criteria of actually in terms of making the final selection? I, do you know what? I think when you're casting, I think you know pretty quickly whether someone's going to be good on camera. Um, so some people were just cast that way. You know, they just had an incredible story and they were immediately cast. Um, but then it was about, are we representing this type of person from this area? So are we representing someone who lives, who, who grew up in a rural area? You know, not everyone comes from a city. Are we representing age? So I, I, I really wanted to make sure that we ticked all those boxes. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, you don't want a program with 20 year olds, 20, 20 year olds. Like it's not a reflection of the diversity of Wales. So um, yeah, with the casting, it was hard to whittle it down because there were just so many amazing people. It was really, really hard. But um, yeah, I mean, in the end, we still filmed too many. <laughs> but you know, I loved um, I loved the beekeeper. I thought he was amazing. Yeah. How did you find him? Well, the producer actually, it was a friend of a friend, and uh, and she was like, "You need to speak to the Rastaman beekeeper." And I just thought. I still call him that to this day. I don't call him Philip. I call him the Rastaman beekeeper because <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. Um, yeah, he was absolutely fantastic. You know, I was I I was really grateful, and he was cast in I'd say the latter stages of the documentary. So um, sometimes that happens. You know, somewhat a gem comes along in the later stages. But I'm really grateful we we found Philip. He's 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 brilliant. And what about structuring it in the, the edit itself? Was that an easy thing? I mean, you've got all this material. Did you have a sense of how, how it would flow or how it would work? Or did it take a while to kind of work that out? Uh, we did it in sort of themes first. So we, you know, I, I had um, a bunch of questions and we just went by theme. So, you know, like identity, racism, hair even. So we went by that. So so then we got all the best sort of clips from each one and then it was a case of putting it all together so that was really that was that simplified it a lot by doing it that way but then you also didn't you equally you didn't want just like and now we're going to talk about hair um so we we wanted it to be quite quirky i was really lucky with the the editor nathan that he he was just highly creative you know and we just had these quite funky montages and it's a bit, it's a, you don't want to use montages all the time. They can be really cheesy. <laughs> so I think they were borderline in the doc, but I think they worked because they just broke it up a bit, you know? So yeah, I wouldn't say it was easy to go through the interviews because they were all really long and that's my fault. Um, but we just, you know, like with everything, you just have to spend the time to make sure that you get those little nuggets, those little gems for the edit. And what overall, in terms of its kind of message, what were you, trying to achieve do you think Part of, I mean I know you wanted to make something celebratory but was yeah. there what what were the other things that you hope people will will get out of it representation is a huge one um because it, I don't feel like we're represented in Wales and like I said before they usually recycle the same people all the time 
Um, so representation was an important one. And also, I think that I just wanted people to, <laughs> to treat us like we're Welsh, really. Um, and, it, and it's really nice because I have got messages from white people in Wales uh, who said it was brilliant. Like I, I was really educated by the programme. And, you know, it, this was a celebration of being black and Welsh, but also it was about educating people because some people have no idea that we exist for one. And another one that, that we're so different that we're other, that we can't possibly be Welsh. So um, I hope I did that with this. I even got someone saying that they didn't realize they were racist before they'd watched it. So if I can turn a racist around, I think I've, I've achieved something there. Okay, well, thank, thanks for the moment, um, Liana. Um, um, Gwen, um, just turning to you um, with Rod Gilbert standing up to infertility. Um, how did, how, again, how did that come about actually? Um, how did you end up making a film about infertility? Yeah, that sort of started. We'd, we'd made a documentary with Rod um, a couple of years previously about, um, that he was shy, that he had sort of social anxiety. Um, and it was the first time he'd done a sort of documentary about himself in that sort of personal way. Um, and that went, that was very well received. In fact, he was nominated for this BAFTA, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, and so there was a sort of precedent set. Everybody liked the way he was good at talking about difficult subject matters. What worked brilliantly was the humor that you can use to to, that really helped with the difficult subject matters. And so um, we, were, there was, we were just talking about, you know, working together again. And it just so happened that he, him and his wife were having problems trying to conceive. Um, and it was something that he didn't really want to talk about, like definitely not publicly. And so we, we you know, we sort of put it to one side and then we sort of broached it every now and again. And um, in the end, he decided it was, He'd read this fact that um, something about the sperm count dropping, something ridiculous, like by 60% over the last 40 years or something crazy mm -hmm. like that. He'd read it, some article, and he couldn't really believe it. So that then, he, he then decided that he did want, he wanted to tell this story. Um, and so that's, so he went to the BBC basically and said, you know, I'd like to do something about this. And they were like, great. So, um, so that's how it sort of started. It was really, really difficult because it's such a difficult subject matter. Um, one, like from his personal point of view, you know, trying to how much can you can will he talk about? You know, how much is he willing to share? And um, and also trying to find contributors, you know, men who are having fertility issues to talk about that on camera. Yeah. No, I mean that that's a really tough thing actually. Um, my my brother is a doctor and works in that area. You know, it's so difficult get, getting men to kind of open up about the subject because they take it so personally, you know, and, and it's almost like an attack attack on them. Yeah, it's a sort of attack on sort of male, you know, manliness or something. Well, that's how lots of people see it. Of course it's not, but that's how people see it. And that that sort of is what Rod discovered really during that during the making of it. It was that it was so difficult. Um, you know, and, and also that the the support groups, you know, there's there's a lot of support for women, um, thank goodness, you know, because it's a, obviously a huge, huge issue for women. 
um, but there wasn't that much for men. So as we were sort of doing all the sort of pre-production and researching into it, and I think we might have started doing a bit of filming, just sort of, you know, an interview with him just to sort of see where he was at. Um, and he met, he spoke to a few experts on camera early on. And then he realized that there's this big sort of gaping hole where the sort of support networks are for men. And so decided um, that he needed to do something about it, even though like, you know, he, he really didn't want to do it because he felt so exposed, but yet he knew it was a good thing to do. If like, if it helps somebody, then it was worth doing. So he decided to set up his own sort of campaign um, called Him Fertility, which we worked with a charity so that we, you know, made sure we were doing things correctly and giving the correct advice publicly. And so we worked with them and he became the, the face of male infertility. So which he was delighted about, obviously, you know. So. In terms of the film itself, you're, you've got various styles in there, haven't you? You've got stand-up, you've got a sort of journey, um, presenter-led journey approach. Um, how, how difficult was it kind of combining all these different ingredients yeah it was tricky it was tricky i think like um it helped that we'd done stand up to shyness you know a couple of years previously because that did sort of offer a, an idea of tone and format almost a very lightly kind of formatted and um, the way we did that was um he you know he, his journey was to sort of help other people to overcome their shyness by doing stand-up. We didn't, we didn't do that with infertility, but we did use that sort of same sort of frame, loose framework, if you like. So we kind of knew roughly what we needed to do and we knew we wanted, so with this one, what we ended up doing was finishing it, the sort of finale was a stand-up show at Swansea Grand, I think the, probably a week or so before um, COVID hit. So, right. in, you know, it feels like a different lifetime ago being in a full, full theater, you know, absolutely packed. And he did a, a special um, show, which was about about. Right. So in order to in order to intercut between the stand up and and the journey, did you um, shoot the stand up before you shot shot the film, or did you shoot the stand up after you'd shot the journey? Yeah, we shot the stand up um, after it because. The things that he learned along the way he wanted to include in his routine and he takes like you know even though he sort of done it specially this little sort of thing for this show which was amazing he, you know he obviously takes it very seriously it takes him weeks and weeks to write and you know really sort of get get the jokes and everything he does so sort of well prepared so we we filmed it then we left him with all the stuff he'd found and all the experts and all the information he found out and he wrote his stand-up and then we filmed that and it was nice because we were able to invite all the contributors, you know, all the men that he had been so fabulous in talking about their experiences and all the experts, they all came together to, to for this stand-up. So it was nice, you know, the best thing about this programme for me was the off-camera kind of legacy. And a part of that was being able to, you know, because they were all Rod fans, so they had like a night out, front seats with Rod, and Rod's so fantastic with people generally. Um, and, and then the, the campaign, just to, I know this is sort of going slightly off on what you're asking, but the campaign has had its own, its own legs, you know, so that's the, right, right. that carries, that continues to this day. And, the, and it's a group that they meet online and then um, continues to grow and grow and Rod attends and um, yeah, so it's been amazing. Brilliant, brilliant. Well done. Um, and 
um, just moving on to Laura, um, Strictly Amy, um, again, how, how did this film come about, really? Did you, did you know Amy or, or, or what? I did not. Um, I was, so Wild Flame um, came to me with the idea. So Connie Fisher and Klinos had, I think they developed it. And um, yeah, so they kind of came to me with a proposal and um, I liked the look of it. And yeah, said, yeah, that's how it all happened. I know what it's like when directors get these proposals. Um, they're a bit like sort of, you know, those pl plumbers when they come in and have a look at what some some other plumbers done. There's a lot of tutting around. Did you <laughs> did you feel it was in good shape when they handed the proposal over, or did you feel, oh my God, there's a lot of work here. I've got to I've got to really start from the beginning. Or what sort of state was it in? Well, I think you know you have to um, be respectful of. The, all of the work they've done and the concept and the idea and I and I think the kind of bare bones of it was really solid um, and then you know there were kind of various um, sort of sequences that they'd you know researched or dreamt up which uh, I wasn't sure would necessarily work um, but then Covid happened and so actually I had to kind of restructure the whole film um, and turn it into something really quite different to what you know the original plan had been. I mean, I suppose like my I like my background is um, very kind of obsy actuality based authored films. Um, so I think it was less like that than you know than than was what I felt I could do best. So I sort of immediately um, changed it into being more about her personal you know her life and her journey and you know and then there were obviously these bits where she kind of went off and met people but the the thing that happened that was really um interesting was our so when covid happened we just had to stop the filming and i'd only probably made about a third of it by that point and um you know, I was like, what am I, how are we going to finish this? What are we going to yeah, do? Exactly. Um, so Amy and I worked together quite closely um, over that period. And um, she did a lot of filming herself. And she actually ended up having three hospitalizations during COVID, you know, some of her worst attacks ever. And she was amazing at filming them. Um, and I think, you know, like she's super brave and really brilliant and you know, kind of used to being in front of the camera. But I think the fact that we had this relationship really helped um, her feel confident to send me these videos of her when, you know, it's like, it's the most unglamorous <laughs> illness you can get. And that's not how people are used to seeing her. And it, it, I thought it was really very brave of her to expose that side of her but yeah so what happened was then I was like oh my god you know we just we don't have enough of a film here and so um there's a film an amazing film that um Charlie Russell made about um Chris Packham um and his Asperger's yes, yes. and in it, um he uses a lot of kind of um backstory um and so I thought that it would be great to include backstory into this film but what we have to do is make it dance make it dance so it kind of became a dance film um, with Crohn's in it, you know, rather than a film that was strictly about Crohn's. And, um, and that was really exciting because I got to, you know, film in a really, really different way and use this incredible DOP. And I got to like, 
you know, hire hospitals for locations and direct dance sequences and yeah. all of this stuff that I'd never done before. But it was it was really it was a, a sort of a new departure for me, and I, and it was really exciting. I I, lo- I liked um, the way you shot um, the scene in the supermarket actually with with the young Amy. Um, that was great. Did you that that must have been fun doing that actually. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, it was all quite stressful because it was still during the kind of, um, you know, COVID was only slightly eased at that point. Um, So, yeah, trying to get a dancer on board and, um, you know, block out a supermarket. Um, But I guess that idea came to me because, you know, she told me this story about how she used to kind of, you know, do these high kicks and, you know, around the sort of local Asda in Kefili and... um, I was like, oh, well, that would be a really good scene. Um, so, um, yeah, we got this um, a little girl to sort of reenact it, really. It's a, it's a very stylish film. I mean, do you, do you, as a director, do you spend a lot of time on that? Because um, I think it's, you know, in terms of films I've seen over the last year, it felt like you were very conscious about the way we we're going to shoot it and whatever. I mean, do you, you must meticulously plan your films quite a lot, actually. I'm about meticulous. Um, I I certainly like. I think like as I become more confident in as a director, I feel more and more like I work with Kat that Liana is talking about, and you know from for a long time. And at the beginning, she's like, "But what's your vision?" And I was like, "I don't know what my vision is." You know. Yeah trying to make a film but I sort of feel you know without sounding like too much of an idiot like I do feel like I have more of a vision now and I feel more confident in being able to execute that um you know as as time goes on and I you know keep learning and learn from other people um yeah brilliant brilliant thank you um Luke um the the film that um you made critical inside intensive care um it must have been pretty hard to actually get access to a hosp- uh, that hospital at that particular moment in time. I mean, did you was it quite easy or how how difficult was it? Well, it was a it was a long time coming really because I made I, I made a film back in twenty sixteen in the Royal Gwent to Newport called Locked in My Body, which was a short fifteen minute film for BBC Three, and then over the, since then we've actually made four films for one hours uh, a, a single and a series so actually the trust we earned that trust with the health board and also with the staff over the course of you know four years um leading up to last last april we'd, we'd filmed the series um the previous year uh the critical inside the intensive care series and that went out in the beginning of i think it was february and then covid kicked off and I'd made I'd made really good friends with a lot of the nurses and the doctors who who work in the Gwent, and okay. I was sort of looking at my Facebook feed and seeing the sort of outpouring of uh, fear and emotion and or, you know sadness that they they were experiencing, and a few of them reached out to me actually. A few of the doctors reached out to me and said, "We'd really like to document this. You know, this is a once in a lifetime." Uh, event hopefully fingers crossed uh, and what they were experiencing was was something they'd never anticipated they'd ever go they were ever going to do so they actually reached out to me and said we really like to do this and at the time we could have actually originally we we could have gone into the hospital and filmed um 
and then you know sort of slight delays in, in getting things off the ground um, out of our control but then eventually the hospital made the decision not to allow uh, families in at which point we made the decision that that would say so well they they also said we acknowledge the fact that it wouldn't be right for us to go in to film a documentary when people couldn't go in to say goodbye to their loved ones so that's when we that's when we made the call to do everything remotely mm -hmm. so in terms of directing it uh i directed it entirely from my living room and where i'm sat right now i didn't leave the house other than to run sort of rushes drives backwards and forwards so how, how, how what were the practicalities uh, of this actually i was curious about it what, what watching this so for those of you who haven't seen the film essentially uh, a range of characters inside this hospital are filming themselves over a, a period of time did they have to upload the material to a central place i mean what how, how what are the sort of practicalities of actually getting getting all that footage together yeah, so it was a bit of a mixture, really. So it started off. So I did, I did sort of interviews with some of the key people. So I did a Zoom interview with each of the key people, which sort of formed the sort of initial backbone. And that's when we sort of won the commission. That's when we decided to go ahead with the commission on the strength of those interviews. Um, and then it was a real mixture. I had people sending me videos of themselves, like on WhatsApp. You know, the emotional sort of in the car nurses at the end of a shift in tears uh and it, and you know that's these, these are coming through sort of in the middle of the night for two weeks um and then we had but then we had sort of more formal arrangements as well for the more um medical stuff so that was all done you know via um a sort of secure dropbox account um and then we did have physical hard drives as well so a couple of the doctors actually live in cardiff so they were backing stuff up onto hard drives and then i would go and collect them process them, deliver them to our editor, um, who's based in Cardiff as well. So yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. It was I mean, I'm used to I'm I'm used to shooting everything myself. Yeah. Uh, so to have no control over what was coming in. Uh well, you know, we tried, I sort of did my best. I did I gave them a sort of a crib sheet, like right. do's and don'ts on how to direct uh with probably mixed success. Um but they were brilliant. I mean, they just... You know, I, I don't think it matters, actually, what, what the framing was like. <laughs> I mean, if, if there's something emotional going on, if there's some amazing story somebody's telling you, even if, even if it's just the top of their head or whatever, it, it's just, it can be just so powerful, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I think well done on that front. Some of the characters were amazing, and I think some of the scenes were extraordinary. What... what um, what was the t what was the sort of period of time that you had to gather all this? Well, so we we it, we acknowledged so the Royal Gwent became an epicenter for the virus uh, quite early on, um, and as I said, I sort of went to, we went to the BBC straight away and said, look, they they're in touch with us. They want to make this film. We want to make this film, um, and then I think we filmed for a well, we they filmed. I said we filmed. They filmed for about three weeks. I think um and we were cutting simultaneously so i i, can't, I have to give a shout out to al edwards who's the editor on this film who did an absolutely amazing job i mean i would say behind any good behind any well-directed film yeah. is a very well edited film and on this one al would just absolutely knocked it out of the park you know he was amazing was he was he the sole editor on it did he, was he the sole editor so it's just he and i so he must have been plowing through tons and tons of material really 
Well, we so we have sort of two stage shifts, and so I would right. sort of do a, a pass on some things, and then like say, you know, this is this is you know worth looking at, uh, and then but yeah, Al did have to go through a lot of material um, and really make something out of nothing in a way. You know, he didn't yeah. have. You didn't have the sort of usually when you start cutting a film, you've got your interviews and your non-sync wides and your close-ups and yeah. you know your noddies or whatever. Uh, we didn't have any of that. We just had really raw, really uh, you know rudimentary material to work with. Also, he um, didn't. Also, he didn't really have a narrative structure either, did he? Because in, in some ways, you created that in in the cutting room there. Um, yeah. Well, because we, we were cutting as we went as well, we didn't know we didn't know what the film was going to be. It was commissioned as a half an hour film, and we sort of had a running cut going through, and then it ended up we showed a cut I think to BBC Wales at about forty five minutes, and we said there's there's an hour here, um, and they and they pushed that they they allowed us to go up to the hour. So yeah, we didn't know we didn't know the film that we were going to make because it was real it was real time. We were cutting in effectively real time. Um, we wanted to get it out you know, as close to, so it was contemporary with what was happening. So I think we finished cutting uh, and then there was like a five day gap between cutting and TX. So it was pretty tight. Um, and the on, and then the online and the grades were pretty complicated as well as obviously a lot of, a lot of uh, confidential issues. A lot of, hmm. So there was a lot of blurring, um, you know, we worked with Gorilla on that and they were brilliant um, as well. So yeah, it was a real, it was a real labor of, love and a lot of people put a lot of time into it for you know in a really short amount of time so no it's brilliant well done uh honestly it's incredibly moving in places um we've got we do have some questions here guys um so uh somebody called adrian says i'm current current doing level three film and tv at cardiff in first year of two course how do you get into documentary and film. We sort of covered that a little bit, but if you were guys advising Adrian on one thing that he could possibly do to get in, um, I mean, anybody can chip in here. What, what, would, you, what would you suggest? Um, I, I, I can have a go. There's, and this might answer um, another one of the questions actually uh, from um, C. Stevens. Uh, someone very wise in television once said to me that ideas are currency. Uh, and actually, if you've got a brilliant idea and you own it, it's either someone you know or it's a character that you know or it's access to a place, then actually that's a really good way to get in. You know, if you if you take an, if you go to an indie with an idea, you're already you know you know you know more of a sort of appealing prospect. So so that's a key thing. And then it does come down to probably a hard graft as well. You know, speak to indies, work work experience, placements. You know do what you can um those those be my two sort of key things anybody else want to chip in on that i was just thinking if you're doing um level three film and tv at cardiff is 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 there an option to to do documentary or film as part of that perhaps i don't know like you know it depends what the course is maybe there's a structure you can change for is level three like the last year? I don't really understand. But if, if it is, I wonder if there's an option to kind of specialise in that during that last year, perhaps. Um, and then you'll get you'll get that last, you know, then do really, really work really, really hard in that last year. And hopefully then um, at least you're in that in the right sort of in the right area, if that's the route you want to go down in the future. 
Yeah, I'd just like to add as well, don't wait until you leave uni to get work experience because you can do it in your half terms or in the summer. Find companies that you like or you like the content they make and just approach them and tell them it's good. You wouldn't believe how, I mean, no one really does that, uh, you know, emails a company and go, I really love this film and this is why, you know, so just try it. Find the program you love, find the company who makes it. It's always at the end. Go to the end of the film and you can see it. And then approach them and try and get some work experience because that'll really help you when you leave. Don't don't wait until the end like like me. Um, there's a, a no, anonymous attendee here actually asks a very good question. Are there any big don'ts you would advise early doc makers to avoid? Any eye rolling cliches or mistakes you've made, you learned big lessons from? Okay, guys, come on, own up. Who? What are the mistakes that you've made that you're never going to do again? I'd say, I'd say um, the, the, a big don't for me is don't be afraid to ask questions. And that's one thing that really held me back at the beginning was just the fear of not knowing something and being embarrassed by it. Just don't worry about it. Everyone starts off at the beginning not knowing anything. That's the reality of every industry every job so don't be afraid i know it's a really quick industry and you have to learn on your feet but just ask because honestly if you don't ask um then you can end up making like the biggest mistakes of your career because you didn't ask the question i know i have through that you know i've, I've got into trouble a few times with various things <laughs> which i which i don't really want to go into but one of the, one of the i think one of the biggest mistakes just with not asking the right question was you know costing a company hundreds of pounds and possibly losing out on using this costume company just because i didn't ask one simple question which was when are they picking the costumes up if i would have asked that then maybe the <laughs> costumes wouldn't have been ruined because they were left there for a whole three days in 30 degree heat in a metal container you know so yeah always ask questions don't be afraid and I, I would add, and this is sort of, you know, going back to what you were saying, Narinda, about the um, the coverage about female directors and how terrible the sats are, that, um, that, that what I found, and I still find, like, young women are really, they really do themselves down on shooting in particular and really underconfident. And, and what you'll often find is, you know, you'll get asked, can you shoot? And a woman will go yeah sort of yeah and then the bloke will be like yeah totally I can do that yeah, and, yeah. um you know and like I just think and by the way even even when he can't you know so yeah. and and I think um well, I think women just need to be like more confident about their own technical um abilities and and shooting is a really really good way to you know being a good shooter is a really good way to get into documentaries and to you know get into really interesting situations because people always need good shooters um and if you don't shoot then you basically immediately end up um being sort of filtered into the producer route which you know is a really important and amazing role too but if you want to direct then you should definitely get really good at shooting and be confident about your skills i, I mean a couple of bits of advice from me i mean i i, I totally agree with luke that coming up with ideas uh, is a good way into production companies uh, to be thinking of documentary ideas is good. 
The other thing I try and look out for in interviews is just really try and find people who love documentary, love watching documentaries, who can talk about documentaries. You'll be amazed the number of people who turn up and say they want to be documentary makers and actually haven't really seen that many documentaries. And I love it when somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm really, I saw this amazing thing the other day and it was, wow, wow. And then you get into a dialogue about, well, how, what did you like about it? Um, you know, was it shot well? What did you, what did you think of the characters? What do you think of the story? And then people who can start talking about stuff like that, I'm immediately engaged with. So in terms of kind of getting interviews or whatever, just watch loads of stuff, guys, um, because you learn it, learn from it. And that's how we all learn from it. Um, so in terms of just final questions, um, can I get sponsors to assist in making environmental documentaries? Who wants to answer that? Luke, you seem like a person who might know about sponsors. Um, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, I'm sure you can. Um, I guess now's, now's a good time to be doing that. Absolutely. You know, um, and, you know, I think BBC Wales, haven't they just been sort of identified as like focusing in on environmental and climate change, um, this sort of BBC strategy. So now is a good time. How you'd go about getting sponsorship? I guess it depends on what sort of sponsor you mean. Does, do you mean sort of, uh, you know, like private sponsorship for like a feature doc, uh, you know, in which case you'd be thinking about contacting you know, green energy companies, I guess, or something like that, so, you know, um, or if you're talking about professional sponsors, then again, as sort of going back to what Liana said, look who are making films already in that genre and contact them and say, you know, I want, I want to make this film, you know, would you give me some backing or put your name to it? Or, you know, I think that's probably the best way to do it. Okay, guys, we're, we're sort of approaching um, our hour, really, and our end. I, I really want to thank... Um, you all actually um, for taking part in this. So Gwen, Luke, Liana and Laura, um, honestly, really, really good films actually, uh, and a, an amazing range of subjects. Um, and you guys just got really, really close to the, the people on screen really. I mean, I was, I was kind of blown away by some of the access um, and some of the sort of revelations really that people were making. Um, so extraordinary and well done. and. Best of luck um, and hopefully catch up with you guys soon. And, um, and thank you everybody. So just, just the, uh, some news in terms of the next event in the series is called The Craft of Editing Tomorrow at 6 p.m. UK time. That'd be really good to, to listen to actually. Uh, as Luke said, the editors are absolutely critical. They are amazing people and it's a beautiful craft actually. So, um, Thank you very much, guys, for joining us. And um, wherever you are, good luck. All right, thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.